Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innalhamdalillahi na'maduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ghfiruhu wa nasta'hdi'i. ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا فمن يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ثم اما بعد now i'm very nervous about my pronunciation of everything you know i have to make sure that it's uh, good because my teacher is here mashallah May Allah raise his rank and elevate him. Um, it is a great honor and a great privilege, as always, uh, to be with you on these Tuesday evenings discussing religious knowledge that is only good for practical implementation. This is not for trivia. This is not for the purpose of debate. This is not even... Uh, you know, if you find something interesting or novel, we certainly appreciate it. But this will mostly be things you know, but hopefully said in a way that deposits somewhere in your heart or somewhere in your mind, inshallah. This is Imam Ghazali's book, Ya Ayyuhal Walad, Dear Son, that wasn't, these were a set of correspondences that were not addressed actually to the son of Imam Ghazali, but rather to a student that had reached an advanced level of Islamic study and was asking Imam Ghazali to summarize for him. Meaning, okay, it's like, give me the khulasa, give me the essence of what it means to study Islam. What should I have gained from my perusal of all of these books, from the countless hours I spent memorizing, etc., And this was a long, very detailed letter that Imam Ghazali wrote to him. We have arrived to a point in the book where we are discussing eight um, comprehensive lessons about what it means to worship Allah. And we're actually on lesson number seven. So we only have two more of these, inshallah. He says, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Al-fa'idatu sabi'ah. The seventh lesson. Inni ra'aytu kulla ahadin yas'a bijuddin wa yajtahidu bimubalaghatin li talab al-quti wal-ma'ashi bihaythu yaka'u bihi he said, the seventh lesson, I noticed that everyone earnestly strives and goes to extremes in exerting themselves in pursuit of sustenance and livelihood. That people apply themselves to working for their livelihood with a certain kind of seriousness, right? If you look at, for instance, this is a small example, but I think it gets right to the heart of what I see when I read this kind of uh, uh, point. 
when you think about what we planned on spending for ourselves, like what I'm going to buy for lunch, how much money I need for parking, all of that is budgeted. I know what I'm going to spend for lunch. I know what I'm going to spend for parking. But when you think about sadaqah, money that you're going to give for the sake of Allah, you don't apply yourself to giving it with the same level of intentionality. If a passerby happens to ask you, do you have a few dollars? Maybe you'll reach down into your pocket and give them a few dollars. But you didn't really apply yourself to giving that charity. You applied yourself to buying lunch. You applied yourself to paying for your parking, right? Ibn Ta'illah, the great scholar and knower of Allah, he said, if you gave intentionally a quarter every day, that would be enough for Allah to write you down among the people of charity because our giving is judged qualitatively, not quantitatively. It's not about how much you give. It's the fact what you work, you woke up and earnestly applied yourself to giving. Meaning this is something that I plan to do, right? When I get paid, I put money aside, right? When I leave home, I take five or $10. These five or $10 are for the purpose of giving to people. But no, our good deeds are performed haphazardly. But when it comes to our livelihood, nothing is haphazard. Everything is intentional. Everything is precise. Everything is structured. Even though, unless we spend that money that we earn for our livelihood, some of it for the sake of Allah, none of it is going to benefit us when we meet Allah. But everything we give is going to benefit us. Somebody once gave uh, Aisha radiallahu anha a khuruf, a lamb. And as fate would have it, as soon as they gave her this, this entire roast, right, a whole animal, everybody came and just started asking for food. It was almost as if they just knew. Yeah, can I have some? And she gave some, and she gave some, and she gave some. And she nearly gave all of it away, except for the shoulder, because that was the favorite cut of meat. To the, that was the prophet's favorite cut of meat was the shoulder. So she didn't give away the shoulder. And when the prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, you know, arrived home, she said with, like, disappointment, Ya Rasulullah. We had a whole lamb. And I want you to understand from this. The family of the Prophet Muhammad lived in great destitution. They lived with great deprivation. They did not have plenty, right? Say that Aisha said sometimes it would be 45, 60 days and not a single fire would be lit in the home of the Prophet we were not eating cooked food. They said, how did, what, what, what sustained you? She said, aswadain, the two black things. They said, black things, dates and water, right? I'll have you know something. The diet of the Prophet Sallallahu was about 75% vegetarian, right? Eating meat was something he did on rare occasions just because meat was a delicacy. 
Now, of course, he appreciated meat when he could, but it wasn't something he consumed often. It was just wasn't in abundance in that way. So, of course, she gets meat. She wants to save as much of it as she can. So she says with disappointment, oh, we had a whole lamb. And I gave all of it away. And the only thing that we claimed for ourselves was the shoulder. And the Prophet said, no, my dear, shift the paradigm. We preserved all of it. And the only thing we gave away was the shoulder. She said, huh? No, I just told you. We gave away all of it. The only thing we kept was the shoulder. He said, no, everything we gave for Allah is going to remain. It will be there for us when we meet Allah. And what we took for ourselves, it will nourish us physically. And then no benefit will be accrued from it. That's it. Right? They're thinking differently. Think about how serious we are about money. You know, one imam, he joked, he said, you know, subhanAllah, some of us can't even concentrate in our prayers if we have money on our person. Because every time we come up from like ruku, we're like feeling to make sure the money is still there. True story. You guys will think that I'm kidding or that I made this up. Praying at the masjid. Praying Salatul Isha. Right? Praying Salatul Isha. And the Imam actually prayed four rak'ah, four units, four cycles of prayer. But after he made the taslim, he said, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. He turned to the congregation and he said, was that three or was that four? And we said, no, no, it was four. He said, I feel like I only did three. One brother said, no, it was definitely four because I own four gas stations. And I think about the inventory that I need to restock at a different gas station in every rakah of the prayer. And I got through all of my gas stations. We looked at each other like, subhanAllah, he just said that at the masjid. Right, I was like, but you said that aloud? Only thing crazier than that, and I didn't witness this. There was this one brother dressed very beautifully, a turban, beautiful robe. And just because of how he was dressed, people said, please lead us in prayer. And he said, no, no, I only lead when I have wudu. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. I only lead when I have wudu. Right? When, I'm, when I'm in a state of ritual ablution, they say, what? You don't, you know, subhanAllah, right? But there is a certain seriousness. We are very easily consumed by earning and by our livelihood. Right? We're thinking about it perpetually. You know, some of us wake up in the morning, we check our Bank of America app or our Chase app, even before we make dua. Praise be to God that has given us life after having caused us to die. And unto him is the resurrection. Uh, but first, let me make sure. Okay, a few direct, you know, I've, you know there's a few accounts here, man, that I'm, I'm on auto pay. I want to make sure. Okay. Oh, that, oh, that wire did come through. 
الحمد لله الذي أحيانا بعدما ماتنا وإليه النشور There's a certain seriousness with which we apply ourselves to our earning, to our livelihood. Now, he mentions here, to the extent that people begin falling into doubtful matters and even haram things. One of those ayat of the Quran, when I read it, even as a non-Muslim thinking about embracing Islam, it suggested to me that the author of this book understands the human condition. Shaitan promises you poverty and then he commands you to indecency. Subhanallah. That it is the initial fear of being impoverished in some way. That initial fear of experiencing deprivation or experiencing want that opens you to a suggestion to do things that are beneath your dignity. Whereas if you didn't doubt your provision, there is no way you would have opened that kind of store. If you did not doubt your provision, you wouldn't have started selling false insurance policies. If you didn't doubt your provision, you wouldn't have started cheating people. But First, shaitan has to say to you what? You know, if you don't do it, you're going to be poor. You don't want that to happen, do you? Right? Everybody, I mean, look. Look at the people that have done well. How do you think they did it? By being honest and upright? Of course not. They cut corners. Now the wheels are turning. Hmm. Right? If you, if you falsify the balance sheet a little bit, Who's going to know? It'll just be a little extra money for you and your family. Now, what's happening in that moment? And I'm jumping ahead a little bit. The person will only do that if they think what? Taking care of my family is on my shoulders and my shoulders alone. If they know my rizq, it comes from Allah. Why would Allah give me through sin? that which he wouldn't give me through righteousness. I was at Al-Azhar University and I had a question that for me was a burning question. I said, ill-gained monies, monies that people accumulate through gambling or selling bad products or theft or uh, 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 right, uh, fraudulence, cheating people, deception, can that still be considered risk, right? Our risk is from Allah. If somebody goes out right now, you know, sells a half kilo of cocaine and says, this is rizqun min Allah, rizqun min Allah. I wanted to know theologically, is that sound? Can you say that? Can a person that sells alcohol or, you know, um, operates a casino, reap the profits of their enterprise and say, this is from Allah. This is my provision. My teacher shocked me and he said, absolutely. Everything that we receive from Allah is risk. Everything that he gives us is risk. He said, the thing is, your risk 
has already been determined for you. So the Prophet said, So seek it beautifully. If you seek it in a way that harms people or hurts people, if you seek it in a way that, you know, uh, dirties your soul, you'll get it that way. But if you sought the risk through something that enhanced you spiritually, through something that elevated you, raised you, uplifted you spiritually, spiritually, you would still get it. You would still get it. The choice is yours. And this is what every person should be told that thinks, if I don't sell this or if I don't do this, how will I make it? The same way you're making it <laughs> now, God will give it to you. But do you have that trust? Do you have that tawakkul? The Quran says, whoever relies upon God, God is enough for him. God is enough for her. I want you to think about something. Think about, think about someone that you feel obligated to. Not someone that thinks you should feel obligated to them. But someone you actually feel obligated to. Could be a friend. Could be a spouse, could be your parents, right? Someone you feel obligated to. When they make it known that I'm relying on you and I'm, you know, taking for granted that all of you are people of integrity, uh, deep consideration, bonds of brotherhood, sisterhood, love, friendship, etc. When they say, hey, man, I'm depending on you. Sis, I'm depending on you you feel obligated to help them. Do you think that you have more karam, more nobility, more generosity than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? If somebody says to Allah, I'm depending on you, I'm, I'm going to do the right thing in this situation and I'm depending on you to make the outcome something favorable to me, something that won't harm me, do you think Allah is going to what, leave them in the lurch? Allah is going to abandon someone that commits to him in that way? Ibn Atta'illah, he said something that was so simple, but like just the correlation between the two words, like just open some psychological space for me. He said, doubt in the rizq is doubt in the razaq. When you doubt the rizq, you doubt the provision. How am I going to make it? Where's my money coming from? Will it be enough? What will I, how will I do it? What was it? You're doubting the one that gives you your risk. Ah. See, we don't like to think of it that way. We think of it as, I was just reading the Wall Street Journal, and this is kind of what the, uh, you know, what the, uh, you know, economists are forecasting. Yeah, you should, you should definitely assess the financial landscape make investments or take on more work or save more, spend less, whatever. But if you doubt the fact that your provision will arrive to you, then you doubt the one that gives you your provision. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And whoever relies on Allah, Allah is enough for them, right? He says, وَيُذِلُّ نَفْسَهُ 
He said, a person will lower themselves. A person will behave in ways unbecoming of a Muslim. A person will debase, a person will debase himself in pursuit of his money. Right? The Prophet he said in an authentic hadith that a Muslim man or a Muslim woman should always be a person of dignity. We have izzatun nafs. I don't debase myself. Right? I don't. Now, we're not talking about tawadu'a. Tawadu'a is a word in Arabic that means humility. Tawadu'a. You know, it said, man tawada'a nafsahu lillah rafa'ahu Allah. Whoever displays humility for God's sake, God will elevate her. God will elevate him. That's tawadu'a. But dhul or yadhillu nafsa, to debase yourself is not tawadu'a. Right? Tawadu'a, I was, you know, looking for a technical definition in preparation for class today. Tawadu'a or humility, it is to claim less than you actually think of yourself. To claim less than you actually think that you deserve in terms of your public declaration or statement about who. So if I think I'm the best teacher of Islam on the Southeast side, I would never let, I would never say that. That's tawadu'a. I would never, I would never let that, I would never claim that for myself, right? Arrogance, is when or, or or conceit is when you claim things for yourself that aren't even true, <laughs> right? Like this isn't even this couldn't even possibly be true, and you think this about yourself, right? Tawadu is like even though I think this, I I lower myself. No, 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 I don't I don't behave in that way. I don't take it seriously, right? Vul is when you do things that you shouldn't have to do because you esteem yourself. So I'll give you an example. I knew a brother and he worked as a consultant and he would often go to like uh, uh, celebration dinners when they would close certain accounts and stuff like this. And he was so afraid of telling his colleagues that he did not drink, that he would either if he could, you know, uh, you know, hide it, put water in his glass and pretend like it was vodka so he could toast with everybody else. Congrats, right? Or if he was caught off guard, he would actually put the, you know, like drink of the vodka without imbibing, sitting there, rush to the bathroom and spit it into the sink, right? he would take the chance of imbibing an alcoholic beverage just so that he wouldn't have to reveal to his colleagues, not that he had a problem with them drinking alcohol, right? That's a different shokum, that's a different ruling, but so that he didn't have to tell them, I don't drink alcohol. This is yadhillu nafsa, he's the, you don't have to do this. The strangest thing, however, is when he finally Masha Allah, may Allah raise him and give him more 
firmness and strength, he finally developed the courage to tell them, no, don't, don't fill me up. I don't drink. Said, oh, when did you stop? He said, actually, I never drank. I would pretend. They said, why would you do a thing like that? Why would you ever feel the need to do something like that? We were going to what, fire you because you don't drink alcohol? You're phenomenal as a consultant. All of our clients love you. We were going to what, fire you? You know, it's funny. I was saying that, subhanAllah, some of us believe that most Americans have, and sometimes it's, you know, justifiable, but Americans have this anti-religious bias that if you tell them that religion is the source of your behavior, like I do something or I refuse to do something because of faith, then you will be ostracized. But if you tell them that you do something or refuse to do something because of trauma or because of some personal conviction that's not at all connected to religion, you will be embraced, right? So if you say to somebody, actually, I'm a recovering alcoholic, they'll get the alcohol out of the room. Oh my God, <laughs> I didn't know. No alcohol, I'm sorry. Sorry to hear that. Sorry, gentlemen, I guess we're drinking grape juice tonight. Right, he's, he's uh, you know, he's, he's been sober for some time, but we wanna keep him steadfast if we can, right? But if you say, no, I don't drink, and they say, why not? Well, it's religious for me, <sighs> right? Really, really? But sometimes this isn't the case at all. And if you simply tell someone, no, actually I don't do that, they will actually um, respect you, right? People tend to respect people who respect themselves, right? Maybe initially there's some, oh, really? But after a while, it's like, oh, no, I respect that. Right? You were clear. Right? He says, فَتَأَمَّلْتُ فِي قَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى وَمَا مِنْ دَابَةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ رِزْقُهَا So I thought about the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran. There isn't a creature on the face of the earth except that its provision is provided by Allah. Everything, you know, whenever I'm watching, um, you know, like uh, Discovery Channel or, you know, uh, I'm on YouTube looking at nature videos or I'm even actually spending time in nature, I'm always thinking, subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the custodian of all of this. Allah is the custodian of all of this. And even, you know, that, fish that's eating something, plankton in the depth of the sea is being provided for by Allah. La ilaha illallah. It's just something to think about. And they have, at least demonstrably, no anxiety about how what is decreed for them is going to reach them. The Prophet wasallam said, observe the bird. It leaves its nest every day with nothing. Right? With no fear about whether or not its Lord is going to provide for it. 
And if you left your nest in the same way, you would be provided for like the birds. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. But doubt about our provision, you know, Ibn Ta'ilah, he has some, uh, you know, brilliant insights about why we doubt our provision. One of them is that it, in a sense, um, it, 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 it makes us continue appealing to God for him to provide for us, for him to give us security, for him to give us wellness, right? I was talking yesterday, because um, mashallah, we're doing the Alam Summer Program now, and Dr. Sherman Jackson was teaching Sirah, and somehow the conversation took like a turn, and we started talking about faith broadly. We started talking about faith broadly. And he said, when Muslims attempt to talk to people of other faiths about faith or people of unfaith, they often begin with God, trying to prove the existence of God. He said, but, you know, he says, I, I find this um, kind of, a, this is a very Western European way of approaching the topic of religion. He said, if you look at the Quran, the Quran is really about human beings, right? The Quran actually takes for granted that people are going to worship something. And the students were looking perplexed, just like you're looking perplexed right now. It's a, I'll give you an example of what I mean. He said he was watching some nature show or something like that. And the camera person was following a lion that was hunting its prey. And the lion crept up behind uh, the gazelles very slowly. And at some point, whenever the time was deemed right, the lion pounced, right? And they got, they got the slowest one and they fed on the gazelle. He said, and then somehow they transitioned to a tribe of indigenous people about to go hunt. And when they were about to go hunt, they did like some ritual, right? They went, they did some ritual. And then all of them were forbidden to touch their wives between the time of the ritual and the hunt. And he said, what's the difference? Is that human beings have this sense that there are supernatural forces that I am trying to appeal to that will determine my success or failure in my endeavors. But only human beings have that sense. See, the lion doesn't do any ritual, like let me do like some kind of ritual and then I'll do something and then I'll go hunting. No, human beings have that sense that no, the success or failure of this hunt is not just how well we train, how well we strategize, how skillfully we attack. No, there are supernatural forces that we have to appeal to in order to get what we need. And so Ibn Ta'ilah, he was saying that one of the reasons that we doubt our rizq is it keeps us cognizant of that fact that, no, no, we have to appeal to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he is the one that gives us our rizq. It is not merely um, how skillfully we can deploy our Right? You, you, you follow what I'm saying? 
So it's very natural for you to doubt. But every time you feel that, that is intrinsic to being a human being, you always know that the place of taking that is Allah. Take that to Allah. Take that to Allah. Whether you're thinking about your rizq, whether you're thinking about your mortality, whether you're thinking about something that scares you, you take it to Allah. You take it to Allah. The word iman actually comes from, what is the root word of iman? Amin. Safety. Safety. That a person entering into faith should feel a great um, security in the fact that I, like everyone else, feel the need to entreat supernatural forces, whether it is through superstition or through luck, or this is an intrinsic part of being human. But I happen to know that the place to take that feeling is Allah and nowhere else. That is what Iman gives you, right? I don't try to invest anything other than God with the ability to ultimately give me security. Because when you don't give that to God, you can be manipulated. Anybody can claim to be able to do something to give you that security whether it's an insurance broker or a drug dealer. I, you, you feel uncertain about the future. I can make you feel certain. But it's just a hustle. They will never make you, you're still going to feel it. But the person that says the future is in the hands of Allah. This is the only way that we can truly minimize our anxiety, right? We were created in anxiety. You know, the great Andalusian, the great Spanish scholar of Islam, Ibn Hazm, he said the um, um, dominant characteristic of human beings is hala, hala, which in Arabic means anxiety. We're anxious creatures, right? And how couldn't we be? We're mortal, right? We're changing, we're subject to the vicissitudes of life and the change that time brings about for all people. We get older, we get, you know, more feeble. So we always, you know, we see people that were wealthy, they become poor. We always have great anxiety about what's going to happen to us. And the place that we should take that anxiety is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Imam Fodeid Rami was asked, and this is a contemporary scholar in Vancouver, a great West African scholar of Islam. He lives in Vancouver. What are the two, or what are the real spiritual impediments to us really having the kind of relationship with Allah that we want? He said, grief and anxiety. Grief is your inability to come to terms with something that has already happened. That's grief. You're incapable of coming to terms with something that has already happened. Could be something that happened to you personally. Could be a major historical event like the transatlantic slave trade. Why did this happen? What, what, why did this happen? That's grief. 
And then he said, anxiety. That is your concern about things that have not happened yet. The key to being relieved of both, to the extent humanly possible, we will always have some of both, right? Is understanding that God is in control. God was in control. God is going to be in control. And working to realize that meaning. It's easy to say that. But working to really like feel that. Everything that happened, it was determined by Allah. Everything that's going to happen, it will be determined by Allah. And the extent to which you can realize that will be the extent to which you experience some degree of ease in your life. Imam Zayd Shakir, he said, as a rule, everything you seek in life, depending on Allah, will be easy for you. Even if, you, if, you, if, it, if it requires exertion, even if, it if it's demanding, but the fact that you don't believe that the ultimate outcome is yours, it provides some psychological ease. Yes, yeah, studying for the MCAT is hard. Going through med school is hard. Doing your rotations is hard. Doing residency is hard. But if you believe this is ultimately going to be the outcome of tawfiq, Allah making this happen, you can do all of that, but you still do so with less psychological strain. But if you do it thinking, it's all on me, it's all on me, I got to make it happen, I'm by myself, I got to do this, I got to do this, you will be worn out. Even if your manner of proceeding and your course of action is exactly the same, we're talking about your psychological state as you do that work. That's all we're talking about. We're not talking fatalistically. We're not saying you can just say, you know, it's up to Allah and not do anything. But even as you're working, you're thinking, hey, I'm just doing my part. I'm just doing my, this is my due diligence. But the tawfiq, it comes from Allah, right? One place that we have to deploy this uh, understanding is in parenting, right? In parenting. For those of you that have children, you know what I'm talking about. You know that you have to say, we're going to do our best. But how this turns out is up to Allah. Doesn't mean that you work any less assiduously, that you're any less diligent in how you apply yourself. But you know, I do what I can. But the ultimate determination is God's. He continues. So I knew. My provision comes from Allah. God has guaranteed it. God has guaranteed it. So I busy myself. My preoccupation is his worship is worshiping him. He has guaranteed my risk. He has guaranteed that for me. God will provide for me. He has guaranteed that for me. So my preoccupation 
is worshiping him. And this has broken my greed. Right? This has broken my greed and it has disrupted my uh, covetousness of everything besides Allah. Subhanallah. You know, the great Imam Ghazali in the Ihya Ulum al-Din, he said, the reason people end up preoccupied with the dunya, the transitory world, is because they never stop to differentiate the means and the ends. You see? They never stop. He said, it's not that you want money, that you just want money for the sake of money. No, no. You want money so that you can turn it into goods and services. But it's not just that you want goods and services. Because if those goods and services provide you with no satisfaction, no satiety, they're not any good for you. What you really want is satisfaction and satiety. That's what you really want, right? And then he, just, he said, just keep following the chain. And where you end, where the conclusion leads, Allah. He said, but we're so shallow that we don't think, well, it's not the money. It's the car that I'm going to buy with the money. And it's not the car. It's my ability to secure what I need to do through the use of the car. And it's not even me securing what I need to do. It's that if I can get to work and I can get to the grocery store, I will be well. He said, if you keep following the chain, what you really want is for God to take care of you. Once you know that, you appeal directly to Allah and not to the money. Directly to Allah and not to the groceries. Directly to Allah and not to the car. Because you can see these are just asbab. These are just means that God is using to, to bring about satisfaction or comfort or security or safety. They don't provide those things in and of themselves. So why not appeal directly to the one that is making you secure, the one that is making you safe? And he said, if you really trust in Allah, you will allow him to provide for you min haythu la yahtasib. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, the one that has taqwa, فَمَنْ يَأْتَقِ اللَّهِ فَاللَّهُ يَرْزُقُهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا God will provide for them in ways they don't even perceive. So when we're relying on ourselves, we're thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something for this because this is what's going to give me the security I'm looking for. This is going to provide the care that I need. But if you just fear God, God will provide the care that you need. And it might be something you didn't even consider. You didn't even think, wow, I thought I needed to do this. You know, I thought I needed to, uh, you know, join the Soho Club. Shout out to anybody that's actually a part of the Soho Club. I'm not. And I found that this activity of painting landscapes provides me with spending my time like that Man, what a surprise. I actually find much more satisfaction in doing that than I probably ever would hobnobbing with other young professionals. 
So the fact that, you know, my application to, you know, be a member of Soho was denied. Hey, okay. You didn't even think that this activity would provide you with the satisfaction, but Allah gave you that. Allah can give you, you know, it's almost like, subhanAllah, one of the things that I appreciate about coffee drinkers, I, I don't drink coffee. Look at these teeth. You think I drink coffee? I don't drink tea. I don't drink coffee and I don't drink tea. But one of the things I appreciate about the connoisseurship around coffee and people really getting into it, how it's grown, how it's harvested, right? The Q rating, et cetera, is that for people that would have been into wine, it's almost like an iwad. It's almost like an alternative, like, you know, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like, man, I never knew that I could appreciate this and the connoisseurship and the history and the passion as much as I could something, you know, because that one person said to me, I mean, what do we have that's like wine? You know how people are just into it. There's this culture and this. I said, well, you know, some people take coffee seriously on that level. Maybe give that a try. The person now is like really into coffee. Have you read Monk of Mocha? I'm like, I actually know Mokhtar Khansali. I actually know him, right? Um, but sometimes Allah, if you focus on the musabib, the one that makes the means work, he can give you things you don't even know of and still give you the security you want, the comfort you want, the inspiration. Because he was saying like the whole wine thing is like kind of, inspiring on some artistic or aesthetic level. And now he found that through something else because he feared Allah. Yeah, I think the culture is kind of cool, but I'm Muslim, so I can't, I can't really engage it. And now he finds something else that provides him with just as much satisfaction and he can actually indulge, he can actually engage. That's what Imam Ghazali is talking about. Don't focus on the means. Focus on the end, subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Aqulun qul hadha wa astaghfirullah li wa lakum li sa'ir al-muslimin wa akhiru da'wana ana alhamdulillah rabbil alameen bismillahir rahmanir rahim al-asr inna al-insana lafi khusr illa ladina amanu wa amilu al-salihati wa tawasibu al-haqi wa tawasibu al-sabr subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salamun al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillah rabbil alameen Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.